I want to uh, look with you. I'm going to read a portion of Scripture, and then we will uh, look at our, our first verse. We're gonna, I want to read two verses, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This is the uh, condemnation of the serpent, who is Satan. And this is the words of the Lord God to Satan, the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As Pastor Scott pointed out, this is the uh, first Sunday in Advent, and as we do this, we do this, the church, uh, this is part of the the church calendar, uh, Christian tradition, as we uh, come and come closer and closer to the day of Christmas remembering the incarnation and the coming of Jesus Christ in human flesh. And as Pastor Scott mentioned, um, we are looking at the Old Testament to look at how all of these things, particularly the covenants, although here the word covenant is not explicitly used in verse 15, to see how all these promises point forward and all the hopes and fears of all the years of the Old Testament really were met in Christ that night. Genesis 3.15, as you read it, I'm sure that most of us have, uh, are familiar with these uh, verses, with the context, especially if you've grown up in church. Uh, you know the story of verses, chapters 1 through 3 quite well. You've seen it in drawings. You've heard about it read uh, many times. And we look at these, these verses, and sometimes maybe they become uh, too common uh, for us. But Genesis 3.15 is the place that we want to begin our, our walking through the Old Testament. And, and perhaps you read verse 15, where God here, uh, after cursing the serpent, then continues on and describes ultimately this conflict that happens between the serpent and the woman. And you read this and you wonder, why is this important? Well, I came armed with authorities. So that way... Um, uh, you, you can know that, uh, th- that this really is an important verse. Uh, reading through Martin Luther's, excuse me, commentary on Genesis, which is a great commentary, by the way. <clears throat> much, much of what I'm going to say today, you could have just read it out of him. Um, him and, and also Charles Spurgeon has a great sermon, actually preached a couple sermons on these uh, verses, I believe. Um, but it, it's just so really good. Martin Luther said this about Genesis 3.15. He said this, It would be my wish, moreover, that I could treat this text in accordance with its importance, for it contains whatever is excellent in all Scripture. Wow. Spurgeon, opening up his sermon on this passage of Scripture, would say this, This is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of this earth. It was a memorable discourse indeed, he says, with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. It must be worthy of our heartiest attention. Later on, he would say that uh, similarly as an acorn holds within it the whole oak tree, similarly this verse contains all the great truths which make up the gospel of Christ. 
So as we dive into this verse and the context, I hope to show you, and I hope that we'll meditate upon the powerful truth that this verse contains. And perhaps it'll be, um, you know, one of those things that as we open up the box, we'll see how much actually just flows from this one verse. Now, in the context, we think about the, the, the passage, we find ourselves in the garden in this verse. God is speaking to the man and the woman and the serpent, the prince of darkness, Satan himself, under the form of a serpent, here in Genesis chapter 3. Now, of course, when we think about this garden, we're reminded, of course, all that God did to create it and plant it. The book of Genesis opens up in those famous words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you read the story of creation, and it's a beautiful story. God makes life, light, goodness. Uh, The world is filled, teeming with living creatures. The earth, the sky, the sea, everything is filled with the life and breath that God gives the universe. And then God takes the dust of the earth and he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over every living creature on the earth. What an amazing thing it is as you look at life before chapter three in the world The world is full of life, light, goodness. Mankind, us, is made from the humble dust of the earth, and God takes that dust and forms it into his image bearers, those who have the privilege, the honor, the gift of being made in his likeness, resembling him, to work alongside him. And God takes mankind and puts him into a special garden, the Garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. And then he tells Adam, he says, you can eat of whatever, whatever you want. Knock yourself out. Except for that one tree. That one tree is off limits. God was trying to teach his image bearers that they were to appreciate and relish in his goodness but always to respect his sovereignty. That at the last, he is good. He's infinitely gracious and good, but he's still God. He was doing that to remind them of that. Now, of course, as we remember uh, what happens at the beginning of chapter three, a new character enters the scene, and we read in verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent, this reptile, is really not simply just some kind of animal, but we know ultimately, especially from later scripture and from the context itself, that this is Satan, the devil, the the deceiver of the world under the form of the serpent. He enters into the garden and he's said to be more crafty. He's sly, shrewd, cunning, I mean, you look at a snake's eyes today and you can kind of get that same feeling, don't you? What's he up to? And is this wisdom or is this cunning? The serpent enters into the garden and he comes and he talks to the woman. And right away he says this, 
Did God actually say this? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's only asking one little question, but in doing so, he's insinuating that perhaps God really didn't say all of that. Notice the first thing that the devil does, and this is a good lesson for all of us. The first step to sin is to doubt God and his word and to doubt God's goodness. Did God actually say that? He just slithers in and slides this insinuation in. The woman, of course, cannot see this. She can't discern what the serpent's doing, and so she replies and says, it's basically true that they're not allowed to eat any of the, they're allowed to eat uh, any of the trees in the garden, but God did say uh, that you should not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And if they eat from that tree, God said they would die. The serpent has gotten her to reply and not really notice the insinuation of doubt creeping in and says, you will not surely die. Most certainly not. Now, you can almost, almost hear this from the old cunning serpent. Are you really that dumb to believe something like that? You're smarter than that. God knows this. You see, God's trying to keep something from you. He knows that the minute you eat of that tree, you'll be just like him. God's trying to keep you from becoming like him. See, the only way to be like God is to disobey God. Now, think about this right away. This is a serpent that is not made in the image of the immortal and living God. And yet he's coming to the image bearer and saying, uh, you know, you just think about who is saying this to the woman? It's a snake. It's a snake, something so unworthy of insinuating anything about God, the great and the good and the glorious God. And so he says, you will not die. God knows that your eyes will be opened. You're going to be smart. You'll know good and evil. Well, the woman looks at the tree, judges things not by what God has told her, but by what she sees. That's another indication, isn't it? When we start judging things by how we feel or what we see and not by what God's word says, we're going to get in trouble. She started to judge things by her senses and not by the word of God. She looks at the tree, it's desirable, it's going to give her wisdom, so she takes it and she eats it, and her husband, who just happens to be with her, we're told, takes it and eats it as well, and then right away their eyes are opened. And there's this dark humor here in this passage, this dark irony, that their eyes were opened, but it wasn't that they became smarter, but their eyes were opened and they realized their shame and their guilt and the terror that overtakes them now. So they go, they try to cover up themselves, they're scared to death, they run away, and then who starts walking into the garden but the Lord God himself? And they hear the sound of the Lord walking into the garden in the cool of the day, and they hide. That's what sin does to us, right? We don't want to be around God. I don't even want to be in his presence. I don't even want to hear the sound of God. Remember what Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We run away from the very sound of God. Sin drives us away, it separates us from him. 
God enters into the garden and calls out for him, where are you, Adam? Adam shows up and gives an explanation. The Lord basically calls him out on that and says, hang on here. This wasn't a problem before. I made you naked. Who, who told you this? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And Adam's response shows just how ridiculous sin makes us look. He responds as, I mean, sometimes we think that, um, you know, kids sometimes respond this way. She gave it to me. <laughs> the woman that you gave to me, she gave it to me and I ate. And then God turns to the woman and asks her, and she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord does something interesting, and this is where we're going to start getting into our verses. He doesn't ask the serpent what happened. Now, if you're reading the passage, you would think that's the next logical thing to ask, to verify, did the snake do this? Did Satan do this? But there's a sense in which the serpent isn't even worth the dignity of asking. He asked the man, he asked the woman, and they're terrified of God. But little do they know that his mercy far exceeds their sin. And he comes to them, as we'll see here, not as the condemning judge, but as the gracious father, ready to bring them back into the fold. He right away condemns the serpent and says this, because you have done this, and ultimately remember, this is not ultimately really talking about the animal. He's talking to the serpent, the dragon that's described in the book, uh, in, in the book of Revelation and through the whole of Scripture, that deceiver of the world, Satan, the prince of darkness himself. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He's cursed. But in the lowest place of humiliation, the lowest place possible. And then he does something astonishing. He speaks verse 15. And it's in the words to the serpent that our first parents overhear that the gospel is first proclaimed. In verse 15, I've got three basic points to draw out here. First of all, God intervenes, declares war. Secondly, God draws the battle lines. And thirdly, God promises victory to the woman through her offspring. Verse, first point, God intervenes and declares war. Verse 15, he says, I will put. God is a meddling God, isn't he? He interferes all the time. He gets in the midst of our business. Here, the woman and the man and the snake, they, you know, if you read the first seven verses here of chapter three, you would think God was nowhere. Where's God? He's, he's vanished from view. Well, of course, he hadn't vanished from view. He's been there the whole time. But all of a sudden, he shows up, and now he intervenes into the midst of this situation. Now, he had already done this in verse 8, right? He, we read, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. 
God already had intervened and inserted himself into the picture in verse 8. Now notice this. God knows everything. He knew what they were doing. He knew before the world was created that he created, they would do this. It was all part of his plan all along. He knew this very thing would happen, that they would disobey his command. They could not hide from him. And the same thing with you as well. God knows everything that you do. You cannot hide from God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 69, verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Again, Jeremiah 16, verse 17, God says about his people, he says, my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Everything you do, you do before the eyes of God. He's right there staring at you. You think about that um, the movie, The Lord of the Rings, and perhaps if you, know, you don't know it, but there's that, that right, the... Um, you can tell I'm not a super fan of it. I mean, I like the movies, but I'm not, I'm not nerdy about it. But like, there's that big tower, and some of you are nerdy, and that's okay. God bless you. But like, um, some of, like um, there's that big tower, right? The big eye. And what happens? Every time the eye hits you, you're caught. It goes through you almost. It's, it's almost like it, it, it penetrates to the innermost being of Frodo. That's what the eyes of God would be like if you were to see it. The question is, is God the judge or your father? Same eyes, but is he your judge if you're outside of Christ, or is he your father and he's looking upon you with the eyes of a father? But he looks right at you. He sees everything that you and I do, and he saw everything that Adam and Eve had done. Uh, our, our sins are not hidden from him, and our iniquity is not concealed uh, from him. We cannot conceal the filth of our sins. God knew what they would do. And yet, and yet, he comes walking in the garden. Now, notice also, Adam and Eve, after they sin, we don't read, and they went into the trees and prayed and sought the Lord. No, no, they're not going to have quiet time. They're not going to read their Bibles or pray to God or ask for forgiveness or, or think about the wrongs they had done. They're not repentant. But God comes anyway. God comes anyway. While they were weak, while they were his enemies, God comes for them anyway. And then he puts himself again in this verse and says, listen, I know that the man and the woman, or excuse me, the woman and the serpent have become friends, and, and in a sense, the serpent has taken hold of the woman and pulled her into his purposes and his ways and led her astray, and she's a slave to sin now and a slave to Satan. But he's now intervening again and saying, I'm breaking this up right now. I will put enmity between these two. And God in doing this declares war. What a wonderful God we have that before we ask him, before we want him, before we think we even need him, he is already pursuing us. He's the good shepherd who seeks the sheep even whenever you and I don't even think we need him. 
So he takes the sight of his image bearers and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will rescue the woman and I will break up this evil alliance. Secondly, God draws the battle lines here. Um, I'm stealing this kind of from uh, Martin Luther here. He says this in this verse. He says, for Adam and Eve not only do not hear themselves cursed like the serpent, and that's very interesting, but they even hear themselves drawn up, as it were, in battle line against their condemned enemy. Perhaps you've seen the movie, uh, you know, movies where battle lines are drawn up. Uh, maybe it's a you know, a, a fictional account. One of the movies that I, I love um, and I have for a while is a, a, a Civil War film called Glory. And it's about an African-American regiment in the Civil War. It's made up of former slaves and freedmen who, who uh, uh, overcome many obstacles, needless to say, in, in the midst of the Civil War and become a fighting regiment that is renowned. And the best part of the movie is at the end, because at the very end of the film, they're tasked with being the leading regiment to attack this Confederate fort. And it's over this, by this beach, you can see the water right there and the forts here, and there's this big, broad, open space of sand. And they're tasked with being the first regiment to go from here and assault the fort. The battle lines are drawn. The Confederates are here, and here are these men here. They know that as the lead regiment, they're going to suffer severe casualties. Many of them will not come home. Many of them will be maimed for life. And yet, there's this wonderful scene where they're all in their uniforms, lined up, ready for battle ready to face and do the deed that's necessary for the day. In a sense, that's what God's doing here. He's drawing the lines of battle. Satan is cursed, and everyone who sides with him is cursed with him. But God rescues the woman and says, I'm with her, and I'm drawing the line here. Whose side are you on? Now, he, he puts up this barrier. He says, I will put enmity, I will put hatred, hostility between the man and the woman. Now, this, this word enmity means that someone is your enemy. In fact, this very word is used in Numbers 35, 21 to describe the hatred that someone has when they murder someone. Now, thinking about the serpent and the woman, remember that earlier they were friends. The serpent saw the woman as easy to be manipulated, easy to be used. So he goes to her first, and by her believing his word instead of God's word, she in a sense sides with Satan, the serpent. And then Adam lines up with her and with the serpent. And it looks as if she is going to be caught and become a slave to sin and to the devil, following the course of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sun's of disobedience. So they looked like friends, not enemies. They had an alliance of sorts. And so what God here is saying is this, I'm going to break up this alliance that exists. 
I'm going to save from out, I'm going to rescue her from the clutches of the serpent. And she's going to become a new people, a new army. And her offspring, the offspring of the woman will be those with whom I side. What a wonderful comfort it was to them to know that the Lord was with them, God with us. So the whole world now is divided between two peoples, two families, two different groups. On the one side, you have the serpent and and his offspring. Now remember, again, God is talking to this specific snake between you, the serpent. And we're told elsewhere later on, and specifically in Revelation chapter 12, that Satan is the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is explicitly identified as being the serpent that is condemned here. So he's saying on the one hand, there is Satan, the adversary, the prince of darkness, and all of his offspring. That's a curious thing. Who are the offspring of the serpent? Is he talking about a bunch of baby snakes that hatch out of eggs? Well, I don't like snakes, but I don't think that's what he's actually saying here. He's talking about all of those who follow Satan. Again, Pastor Tim has been preaching in Ephesians, and it matches perfectly that chapter 2, verse 2. They are those who follow this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They're like the serpent in that they don't like God, they hate God, they don't believe what God says, they don't really care to hear what he has to say, they don't repent, they don't come back to God, they don't like the living Christ, and they don't like the church. There's only two groups, by the way. There's not a neutrality. There's no Switzerland in spiritual matters. You're either part of the offspring of the serpent or the offspring of of the woman. Elsewhere, these same ones Jesus will call sons of the evil one, Matthew chapter 13. They are those who make a practice of sinning, 1 John chapter 3. They are called the children of the devil in 1 John chapter 3. And perhaps one of the clearest examples is when Jesus himself is speaking to the religious leaders, and what does he say to them in John chapter 8? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So there's Satan and all of those who embrace his system, his beliefs, his practices all those who follow him. But on the other side, facing this serpent, this who elsewhere is called the great dragon, is the woman. Now, don't let let that hit you a little bit. Now, I might be, uh, you know, I'm I'm not a manly man in the sense in which I don't like snakes, I don't like dead stuff and things like that. So perhaps my house is a little different. Like I might have to ask my wife to go kill a snake every now and then, right? I don't like that kind of stuff. Um, But most of the time, most of the time, it's men who kill snakes, right? Not the women. And also, whenever you look at this passage of Scripture, 
Who's the first person to be deceived? The woman. Well, it would seem like the last person you would want to head up the army against Satan would be the woman. It looks like the last possible person who could possibly defeat the great dragon, the serpent, Satan himself, would be the woman. The woman? <laughs> I mean, maybe the man, right? What about Adam? I mean, why can't he do it? He's stronger, and, and he was, dece- he, he, was um, he sinned second, not first, so maybe he's got a bit more sense in him. But one of the interesting things is, is throughout this passage, Adam does not come off very flattering. The woman. You see, Satan used the woman because he was least afraid of her. And he thought that if I can get her, I can get him, and if I can get him, then I can attack God. But God here is saying, I'm going to use that same woman, and I'm going to save the world through her. Now, also, there's a couple of other things. One of the things that this reminds us of is that it's the enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, not his offspring or their offspring, her offspring. Because this is to remind us that all of human history hangs upon two people, the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam has failed. He brought about sin, death, hell, and, and, and because of him, we are where we're at. There is no more hope through the first Adam. You'll notice, by the way, God doesn't come with 10 rules to help them build a better life in a fallen world. He doesn't come to them and say, listen, here's 10 steps to get back in the good graces with you, or here, Adam, here's five ways that you can really show you're sorry enough to where maybe I'll save the world. No, I'm done with the first Adam. I'll save him through the woman, but there's no salvation to be had through him and on account of him. There has to be a second Adam come. There has to be a new man to bring about a new creation to save the world. So there's no more help, no more hope for us in Adam. We have to look for the second Adam. But what does the woman have? She's weak. She's, she, she was deceived first. She's in a state of sin. How in the world, what does she have? The promise of God. That's enough. She has God, because God is saying, I will put this and I will save the world through her. Now, who are the offspring of those, of this woman? Well, those who take their place alongside her. Those who similarly have nothing to offer, but simply look to the promise the promise of God. We are the children of the promise. We are those who have been given the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Similarly, we're told who they are in Revelation chapter 12. If you want to read a commentary kind of upon the whole view of this verse 15, read Revelation chapter 12. It really is just a giant commentary upon this. And it says this, then the dragon, Satan the serpent, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are the offspring? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
That is through the seed of the woman. So the battle lines are drawn, and there's a couple of very important things to think about before we go to the final part of this. Is first of all, whose side are you on? Are you a snake at heart? Or are you born again of the woman? Whose side are you on? Second of all, for those of us who are in believers, especially, do not be surprised when you face trials of various kinds. You've been brought up into the battle line. That's what you were drafted into, a conflict that's been raging for thousands of years. Sometimes we wake up and we're surprised that sin still haunts us. We're surprised that we face trials. We're surprised that life can be really hard. But we shouldn't be surprised, although we are, we're in a war. God has declared war, and the battle lines have been drawn. The woman versus the snake, her offspring versus his offspring. But what is the promise that they ultimately are leaning on? What is the promise? Who will win the battle? How will it all turn out? Who can possibly defeat the great dragon? Who can slay him? Well, God says this, the last part of verse 15. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your, the serpent's, head and you, the serpent, shall bruise his, the offspring's, heel. God promises victory to the woman through her offspring. Now, first of all, notice a couple of things about what this looks like. First of all, this offspring who is to come is born of the woman. Now, that seems obvious, right? But that's a big deal. He is the offspring of the woman. The woman does not defeat the snake. She enters into the victory, but it's actually her offspring who will defeat the snake. And notice, he is flesh and blood. This promised child will be a human child, and he will share the same human nature as the woman and the rest of her offspring. God is not going to send a supernatural angel down from heaven just by himself to slay the serpent. It's not simply God by himself who defeats the serpent. It is someone who shares the same human nature as the woman. Someone who is not ashamed to call the rest of the offspring his brothers. Someone who shares in flesh and blood and will partake of the same things that we do. Who is like us, who understands what it is to grow up, to experience pain and loss, and who will be like us in every respect and able to sympathize with us. But he's like us, but he's also unique. There are indications within the text itself and later on in the book of Genesis that she's not thinking primarily of the whole, because the word offspring can, refer, can be used two different ways. It can refer to many individuals as a collective unit, the offspring, or it can refer to one individual. And while there is a collective aspect to this, there are indications that she's thinking about one specific person to come. He's unique. He's different. He's what Charles Spurgeon calls the champion. He's like David whenever he fought Goliath. One of my favorite movies is the movie Cinderella Man. 
um, with Russell Crowe, and he's fighting boxing James Braddock, right? And he's fighting Max Baer in the 1930s. And it's in the middle of the Great Depression, and people are struggling. And if you know the story, James Braddock has been a good boxer, but has gone downhill. And then all of a sudden, he starts coming back up. And he's almost like the people's champion. And whenever you see the last scene, whenever he fights the defending world heavyweight champion in boxing, who's almost like this, this, great, this great valiant warrior, and here's Jim Braddock, who, can, who in the past has been struggling to barely feed his family. How can he defeat Max Baer? But then you notice in the scene what's happening. Everyone, the stadium is filled with the common people. They're looking down at the arena. And everyone's listening to the radio, wondering what's going to happen in the fight. There are people in the church praying for the victory. And that's kind of what this is like. Can our champion defeat the dragon? Can our champion win? And everyone's ears and eyes are wondering, can he do it? Will he do it? And we're told he is going to come to defeat the great dragon. He's unique. He's our champion. He's also going to suffer, however. He's going to be bruised. We read this, that the serpent shall bruise his heel. So in this fight with the serpent, the unique offspring here, the champion, is going to be hurt. He's going to experience pain. Serpents strike, and they sink their fangs into the skin. They penetrate this offspring will suffer. Well, what was, the suf- what was the power that the serpent had before this? Death. Death. You will not die, and he was doing it the whole time to bring about death, and therefore to hold them in terror with death this whole time, and to bring about commission of sin and breaking of the law. This power is what the offspring has come to destroy but he's going to face the law, sin, and death. And somehow, some way, through pain, through blood, sweat, and tears, he's going to reverse the curse. But he's also going to be victorious. He will suffer, but he will win. It says, he shall bruise your serpent's head. Now, of course, where's the power of the snake? It's in his fangs, it's in his eyes, it's in his head. If you go after a snake and you just try to cut off the tip of his tail, it's going to do no good. You go for the head. Because if you crush the head, you kill the snake. You take away his power, all of the ability that he has. And similarly, this one, in defeating the serpent, will defeat all of his power, all the sin, all the death, and hell itself. And his victory will be the victory of all his brothers and sisters. Now as we wrap up, this was the promise upon which Adam and Eve built their faith. This is what they had to build their lives upon. They knew life was going to be hard because verses 16 through 19 still had to happen. But notice what God does. He gives them the promise first, and they can deal with physical death in this life. They can deal with the hardships of this life, marital and family struggles in this life, because they know they have eternal life promised in verse 15. They had the promise. Everything that Adam lost 
one day would be regained. And that included not only their souls, but their bodies as well, hinting at a resurrection. And this is also why I would argue that Adam names his wife Eve. Notice that name is not given to her until after verse 15. She's the mother of all the living. Who are the people who really live? Those who are in Christ. True life, Adam knew, was to come through Eve. She was already the mother of the whole human race, but now she's the mother of a new spiritual race. Now, if you're the serpent, how are you dealing with this? And Luther wonderfully has a section where he imagines the devil hearing this becomes obsessed and afraid. Now, isn't that ironic? The serpent before was least afraid of the woman. He used her. That's why he used her. She's the most vulnerable, he thought. But now he's most terrified of her because the one who's going to crush his head is going to come, not from Adam, but through the woman. And Luther does a great job of showing Satan's paranoia and fear for thousands of years. It's, a, it's, it's amazing. He's terrified of the woman and, and because he knew that, that God and his promise that this child would come and slay him. And so from that time on, Saint, Satan waited looking everywhere for the child. We see this conflict between the seeds and the woman and the serpent going on through the whole Old Testament, Cain and Abel. And then we see it again with Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Israel, Egypt, David, Goliath. The conflict happens, and over and over, the serpent rages against the seed of the woman, and God somehow, some way, isn't it amazing, by the way, don't forget that. Don't, don't overlook those passages about Sarah, old barren woman, but God brings forth the child of promise through her. Rebecca, God brings forth the child of promise through her. Rachel and Leah, Leah, who is the underappreciated wife in this marriage, is the one through whom Judah comes forth. Ruth, who's a Gentile, is brought in to the family of God, and from her comes Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. From David comes Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and on and on and on it goes. This conflict continued for thousands of years, and the world waited, Satan paranoid, looking all over the world for the child of promise, waiting for the heir of all things. And it looked like he may have won, because God's people went into exile. The, 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 the people, the, the, the line of Judah, the line of David was in the dust. We're told in prophecy they were like a stump. They were cut down to the bottom. It looks like nothing can grow here. Isaiah 53, he comes out of dry ground. And then, at a time whenever the royal line of David is decimated, they're not in Jerusalem. Actually, an Edomite is ruling the country. The world is ruled by Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. And then one day, at the right time, God sent Gabriel 
to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? To a virgin, a woman, betrothed to a man. And then the words that every believing heart for thousands of years had longed to hear. You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The child was born. And you saw the rage of the serpent. In Revelation chapter 12, he's pictured as waiting for the woman to give birth so that he might devour the child. But God keeps him from Herod's clutches, preserves him. And at the right time, he faced sin. He faced temptation in every way, yet without sin. He faced the old dragon in the wilderness, defeated him there, defeated his minions all his life. And at the right time, this child, this offspring who was born in Bethlehem, voluntarily drank the venom. He was oppressed, he suffered, he bled, he died. In other words, his heel was bruised. But little did the serpent know, but the crushing blow had been struck. And his cross and his resurrection crushed the head of the serpent, and we are free. Christmas reminds us of his incarnation. And that incarnation was the climax of thousands of years of waiting. The child born in Bethlehem was the son of Abraham, the son of David, as we will see. He was an Israelite. But he was the son of the woman, the offspring of the woman. That ancient promise that God had given thousands and thousands of years ago, he fulfilled. Friends, whenever we ever doubt God's faithfulness, believe this. For thousands of years, people died and looked to the offspring to come. He is faithful. That's what Advent also should remind us of. Should remind us of the victory that's been won because our champion has now won, but also in a sense, in an odd way perhaps, Christmas is a renewed call to war. Now it is true, it's for peace on earth, but peace comes because of the war's been won. To wage the war against the enemy. And that means to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with other people, to fight sin, to pray mightily, and to hope in him. Because we fight a fight that has already been won. The serpent's head has been crushed and at the last day, he will be cast away forever. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you for this wonderful promise of Genesis 3.15. Our whole hope is built upon it. Our whole confidence in life and in death is built upon it. We thank you for the crushing of the serpent's head. We pray that as we think about Christmas, we would rejoice that the 
that in Christ you have also put Satan under our feet. We also pray that you'd help us to fight the battle valiantly, to stand bravely in the battle lines, knowing that we cannot lose, that Christ has overcome the world. We pray that you would bless your people, that you'd bless this time now as we sing and praise your name. For Christ's sake, amen.